All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is Michael. This is part two of Breath by James Nestor. In this episode, I will be discussing the importance of lung capacity, the importance of exhaling, the importance of breathing less, and the importance of chewing. Now, before I begin, if you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to please leave a review. And I'll go ahead and leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to leave me a comment or suggestion. So we're going to begin with the importance of the lungs and lung capacity. Now, if you're familiar with research, you've probably heard the Framingham study. So back in the 1980s, there was a 70-year longitudinal research program which focused on heart disease. And this Framingham study kind of trying to find out what exactly correlated with longevity. And after looking at 5,200 subjects, there was a, a conclusion that the greatest indicator of lifespan was not genetics, diet, or the amount of daily exercise, which a lot of people probably suspected. And it was actually the lung capacity, which was the most important indicator for lifespan. And all the way up until the 1980s, there was this common belief in Western medicine that the lungs, like every other internal organ, were kind of immutable, like we can't really change that. But we know this is not true nowadays. And the best example is freedivers. Now, James talks about a a man by the name of Herbert Nitsch. He was a uh, multiple world record holder in freediving. And he actually had a lung capacity of 14 liters. And this is actually more than double the average size of of a male. And these freedivers kind of taught themselves how to breathe in ways that dramatically changed the internal organs of their bodies. So we know... Uh, all our lungs, our, our cardiac tissue, this is all malleable. We can all change this uh, by changing uh, breathing techniques and practicing. So again, this free diver was able to hold 14 liters um, in his lungs. Uh, to- that's his uh, total lung capacity, which is double the average male. So James kind of goes and meets with this lady named Lynn Martin. And they start, they start discussing uh, about this man named Carl Stowe. Carl Stowe was a choir conductor and also a uh, pulmonon, as James calls him. So what Stowe had kind of discovered and what Martin had learned was that the most important aspect of breathing wasn't just to take in air through the nose. Inhaling was kind of the easy part, but the key to breathing, lung expansion, and long life came with the other end of the respiration, so the exhale portion. The exhaling portion is actually more important than the inhalation part. So Stowe was asked to come and meet another doctor. His name was Dr. Maurice. Dr. Maurice uh, J. Small was a is uh, the chief of tuberculosis management, and back in the nineteen sixties. And when Stowe arrived at the hospital that Dr. Maurice J. Small was working at, which was the East Orange Hospital in New Jersey, he was very horrified at what he saw with these TB patients. And not only was he dealing with TB patients, but he was dealing with other patients who were suffering from chronic uh, breathing problems and other breathing uh, uh, diseases like COPD, you know, which includes emphysema and uh, bronchitis. So he's seeing these people riddled with emphysema uh, in the hospital. And emphysema is kind of this gradual deterioration of lung tissue, which is marked by uh, bronchitis and, and coughing. And the lungs become so damaged with emphysema that people can no longer actually absorb oxygen effectively. So he kind of realized that emphysema was a disease of exhalation. And the patients were suffering not because they couldn't get fresh air into the lungs, but they couldn't get enough stale air out. 
So this is the obstructive lung diseases. People with obstructive lung diseases, think of people who smoke for a long time, people who are uh, you know, morbidly obese, people who uh, you know, have COPD or have emphysema or have asthma. It's a problem of getting air out. Now, there's an opposite end of the spectrum, with, which are called restrictive lung diseases, which is problem getting airs in. But for now, I'm just focusing on the, the exhalation part. These people with emphysema have a problem with exhalation. And not only did they have a problem with exhalation, they also had a problem with their diaphragm as well. So the diaphragm is this kind of dome-shaped muscle which sits beneath the lungs kind of like, a, like the, in the shape of an umbrella. And the diaphragm lifts during exhalation, uh, which shrinks the lungs, then it drops back down to expand during inhalation. And this can actually occur 50,000 times a day. Um, and so we continue with Stoff, uh, Stoff, who discovered that the diaphragms and all these patients that were in the clinic, they had kind of broken down. And the x-rays showed that they were extending their diaphragms by only a fraction of what was healthy and only taking in little sips of air with each breath. Instead of taking these nice deep breaths, all these patients were kind of taking in little sips at a time. So Stowe, uh, he decided to perform some exercises. For example, he did some stuff like running his hands across their torsos, gently tapping on rigid muscles and distended chest. He massaged their necks and throats and lightly uh, coaxed their ribs and as he told them to inhale and exhale very slowly. And what happened was after several sessions, some patients learned to speak full sentences in a single breath for the first time in years. And there was one elderly man who had actually not been able, he hadn't been able to walk across the room. Uh, and then, but after his this treatment, he was able to walk up hospital stairs. So some drastic improvement in his breathing. And this is a remarkable feat for any patient with advanced emphysema. So Stowe, as I mentioned, hadn't found a way to reverse emphysema because we know emphysema is kind of like this lung di uh, damage from from uh, any excessive smoking and other stuff. But we know this is kind of a permanent thing. But what Stowe really did was he'd find he'd find ways to access the rest of the lungs and the areas that were still functioning and engage them on a larger level. So basically, what he's saying is there's part of our lungs that we're just not tapped into. But with these breathing exercises, we're able to fully expand and use all of our diaphragm and all of our lungs. And that's important, again, thinking back to our lung capacity and longevity, uh, which this whole podcast is about. So we move forward to the chapter called Slow. So we kind of realized that there was a gap in our knowledge about the science of breathing and its role in the bodies. And... Uh, James Nestor's friend Olson, which I, he's doing the experiment with, he discovered that uh, we're doing a good job of examining what causes breathing problems, but we've really done little to explore how they first developed in the first place and how we might actually prevent this. So what many of the doctors found and what Olson would discover later was that the best ways to prevent many chronic health problems, improve athletic performance and extend longevity was to focus on how we breathed specifically to balance oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in the body. And to do this, we need to learn how to inhale and exhale slowly. And I'm going to kind of get back to this in a second. But first, he, he kind of discusses the, uh, the role of gas exchange. So gas exchange, you're probably familiar with, with it. You're doing it right now. You're taking in oxygen and you're breathing out carbon dioxide. 
So he has this cool analogy and passage. He puts, as blood passes through tissues and muscles, oxygen will disembark, providing fuel to hungry cells. And as oxygen offloads, other passengers, namely carbon dioxide, the waste products of metabolism will pile aboard and the cruise ship will begin to return journey back to the lungs. So we're taking in the oxygen, breathing out the carbon dioxide. Uh, this is obvious. But what people don't realize was that carbon dioxide actually plays a huge role in weight loss. So uh, every carbon dioxide, when we inhale and exhale, uh, when we exhale, we're, we're actually losing weight through exhaled breath. So for every 10 pounds of fat lost in our bodies, eight and a half pounds of it comes through the lungs. We know carbon dioxide actually weighs something. It obviously doesn't weigh a lot, but this carbon dioxide in every exhale has weight and we exhale more weight than we inhale. And this is actually how we lose weight is through our breath. Now the rest of it is kind of like sweated or urinated out. But for the most part, the way we lose weight is through breathing. So that's why it's important to have, you know, proper breathing. So that's just a little uh, fun fact about carbon dioxide. It plays a huge role in weight loss. And he puts here that he realized that breathing was kind of like rowing a boat. Taking a zillion short and stilt strokes, strokes will get you where you want, where you're going, but they pale in comparison to the efficiency and speed of fewer, longer strokes. So the point is, we need to slow our breathing uh, and take these longer, but fewer strokes. And I'm gonna get to the problem of overbreathing in uh, in just a second. So, the rates of breathing are kind of difficult to gauge because there's really few studies that are. Uh, looking at this but nonetheless there was a re review of some studies that kind of showed a, a troubling picture and what this picture was was that not only have the united states been uh, a place for overeaters we've also become a culture of over breathing as well so most of us breathe too much and up to a quarter of the uh, the modern population suffers from uh, more serious chronic over breathing and the key to optimum breathing and all health endurance and longevity benefits that come with it is to practice fewer inhales and exhales in a smaller volume. So the point is to breathe, but to breathe less. Now, he puts here that him and his friend Olsen, they were kind of uh, testing out breathing experiments at the Golden Gate Park. And they really had this epiphany that slower, longer exhales, of, of course, means higher carbon dioxide levels. Think about it. I'm breathing less, so I'm having higher carbon dioxide in my body. And with that bonus carbon dioxide, we actually gain a higher uh, aerobic endurance. And this measurement of high oxygen consumption, which we call VO2 max, is the best gauge for cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, training the body to breathe less actually increases our VO2 max, which can also not only boost athletic stamina, but also help us live longer and healthier lives. So if you don't get anything uh, out of this uh, few sentences, just remember to breathe less because we have more carbon dioxide, which helps with our VO2 max. Uh, that is the point. So we're moving forward, and then we're also going to be talking about another obstructive lung disease, which is asthma. Now, nearly 25 million Americans suffer from asthma. That's about 8% of the population. And asthma, again, is this obstructive lung disease, which is uh, kind of immune-mediated. Immune me so our immune system is very sensitive, and it causes uh, constriction and spasm in our airways. And what people don't realize is that asthma can actually be brought on by over breathing, which is why it's so common during 
physical exercise, um, people develop this thing called exercise-induced asthma, which actually affects about 15% of the population. And so he talks about this man named David Weeb. David Weeb is a 58-year-old uh, uh, cello and uh, violin player from Woodstock, New York. And he had suffered from asthma since he was 10 years old. And he actually used a bronchodilator about 20 times a day, along with steroids in an effort to kind of keep his symptoms at bay. And his body became so tolerant to these drugs, he kind of needed more and more increases in the dosage. And we know the problem with chronic use of uh, corticosteroids, which is kind of like the second line treatment of, of asthma. Um, it can cause like the Cushing syndrome, Cushing disease, which I talked about before. But within three months of learning how to breathe less, we was using no more than one inhaler puff a day, and he'd cut out the steroids entirely. So his breathing was so bad, he needed to use a steroid uh, bronchodilator 20, 20 times a day. But after these breathing techniques and breathing less, he only needed one inhaler puff uh, a day. So to further talk about asthma, we meet up with this doctor named Dr. Alicia Mayret. She is the director of Anxiety and Depression Research Center at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And in 2014, uh, this Dr. Mayrut, she gathered 120 randomly selected uh, asthma sufferers and measured their pulmonary lung functions, the lung size, blood gases, and then they, he, she also gave them a handheld uh, captometer, which tracked the carbon dioxide in their exhaled breath. And over four weeks, the asthmatics would carry the device around and practice breathing less to keep the uh, carbon dioxide levels at a healthy level. And a month later, 80% of the asthmatics had actually raised their CO2 levels and experienced significantly fewer asthma attacks, better lung function, and widening of their airways. They all breathed better. The symptoms of their asthma were gone or markedly decreased just by breathing less. So if you're suffering from asthma, uh, this is something to read about, is the importance of having a higher CO2 level. Now, carbon dioxide is also important for maintaining pH balance. When we breathe too much, we expel too much CO2, carbon dioxide, and our blood pH rises to become more alkaline. So let me explain. To find the pH in your body, all you simply do is take the proportion of uh, bicarbonate, which is HCO3, and you divide that by CO2. So CO2 is the denominator. So think about when we breathe faster, we're losing CO2. So CO2 is going down. If the number on the bottom is going down, we know uh, on the other side of the equation, pH is going up. So our pH is becoming more alkaline. And this is bad for a few reasons. First off, um, all our cellular functions take place at a good pH, which is 7.4. This is the sweet spot between alkaline and acidity. If we don't keep this good pH at this level, we can't have our cells functioning uh, as efficacious as we want them to. Now, secondly, if we breathe too fast, we're losing the CO2 and there needs to be some compensation. And this compensation comes from our kidneys, actually. And remember back to the equation I talked about pH is proportional to bicarbonate over CO2. Well, in, in ways to in, uh, attempt to compensate with the decreased CO2, bicarbonate will also decrease so this is balancing the pH. And as bicarbonate kind of leaves our body via the kidneys, it unfortunately takes other things with it, like magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, and a lot of other things with it. And we know the importance of all these uh, minerals in our body, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, 
we need these in, in, our, in our body for uh, proper functioning and uh, to prevent against osteoporosis. So that is another reason why we should uh, slow down our breathing so we don't change our pH too much. So in short, he just puts here to just keep breathing, comma, less. So breathe less. And then we move on to the next chapter of chewing. So I'm skipping a little bit ahead and we begin the last chapter of part two, which is called chew. And he puts here that researchers have suspected that industrialized food was shrinking our mouths and destroying our breathing for as long as we've been eating this, uh, this way. And all the way back in the 1930s, there was a man by the name of Weston Price. Now, Ben Greenfield talks about this guy a lot. He's a big fan of his diet. Weston Price was the founder of the National Dental Association Research Institute. And what he, he kind of hypothesized was that um, when it came to our health and diet, there wasn't one specific vitamin or, or any vitamin that was deficient that uh, was causing the problem. Um, he wasn't interested in the cause of uh, shrinking mouths and deformities. He was kind of interested in finding the cure. And again, it wasn't just this like uh, vitamin deficiency that's causing this changes in our mouths. And over decades, starting in the 1930s, Price decided to compare the teeth, airways, and general health of populations around the world. So he examined indigenous communities whose members were still eating traditional foods and compared them to other members in the same community, sometimes the same family, who had adopted a modern industrialized diet. Now, no matter where he went, it was the same story. Societies that replaced their traditional diet with modern processed foods suffered up to 10 times more cavities, severely crooked teeth, obstructed airways, and overall poorer health by switching to a modern, this modern diet. And while the foods in this diet often varied, they all contained you know, in, enough vitamins and minerals. Um, so the problem wasn't just a deficiency of like vitamin D or vitamin C, uh, but it was kind of a deficiency of all, all vitamins. And we needed all these nu nutrients to develop strong bones throughout the body, especially in our mouths and faces. So kind of, so Price, as he kind of, uh, James talks here, he says that Price was only half right. Vitamin deficiency might explain why so many people eat, eat industrialized foods were sick, but, uh, you know, he puts here, they might explain why so many are getting cavities and why they're getting bones, uh, why their bones were growing thin and weaker. But this vitamin deficiency couldn't fully explain the sudden and extreme shrinking of the mouth and the blocking of the airways. So there was something else going on. And obviously, but the, the, the name of this title, Chew, we know the problem is chewing. So the problem had less to do with what the people were eating, but how they ate it. It was a constant stress of chewing that was lacking from our diets, not vitamin A, B, C, or D. You know, we, this is partially true. They were getting half their vitamins, but the problem was the chewing. And think about back to our ancestors. Our ancestors chewed for hours a day, every day. And because they chewed so much, their mouths, their teeth, throat, and faces grew to be wide and strong and pronounced. And food in industrialized societies was so processed that it's hardly required any chewing at all. You know, we're always like uh, swallowing our foods, our solid foods. And whenever we're distracted by uh, something we're watching or something, we eat too fast and don't chew our food. And this is causing uh, these problems in our mouths, these uh, crooked teeth, the narrowing of the mouths, um, all from chewing less. And he puts here that 
they, there had to be procedures, manipulations, or exercises that could reverse the past few centuries of damage from uh, soft and mushy industrialized foods. And of course, James, um, being the guy that he is, he kind of ventures off and started visiting some modern medical offices, meeting with specialists who looked at the, the top of the nose and kind of worked their way down. So he meets with a lot of people, but I'm just going to skip to the most prominent one, which you may have heard of before because his name is growing in popularity. And this man is by is, is uh, by the name of Dr. John Mew. So J- Dr. John Mew, if you've been on YouTube, you've definitely heard of this guy. He's a British facial, facial surgeon and dentist. And Dr. Mew, he, over and over again, the children who had teeth removed from his office and had undergone some retractive orthodontics suffered from this stunted mouth and facial growth. And as they grew up, the rest of their bodies and heads kind of grew larger, but their mouths were forced to stay the same size. Now, this mismatched, uh, this mismatch kind of created a problem at the center of the face. So the eyes would droop, the cheeks would puff out, the chins would recess. And he was kind of ridiculed by, by people um, for, a, for the longest time. And it wasn't really until 2018 when there was a, a published paper in the Stanford University Press, which, is a, which was a 216-page paper by uh, Paul Elrich and Dr. Sandra Kahn, um, dealing with um, you know, some of Mew's theories. And when he was kind of um, referenced in this paper, Mew's name started to grow and he, he became uh, you know, a prominent figure in, in this mouth and breathing community. So James meets up, meets up with Mew, and he meets up with uh, Dr. Mew's son, his name is Mike, who's also a dentist. And he explained that the first step, and Dr. Mew explained that the first step to improving airway obstruction was not orthodontics, but instead involved in maintaining correct oral posture. And anyone can, anyone can do this. This is absolutely free. It just meant holding the lips together, teeth lightly touching with your tongue on the roof of your mouth. Hold your head up perpendicular to your body and don't kink the neck. When sitting or standing, the spine should form a J-shape, perfectly straight until it reaches the small of the back, where it naturally curves outward. So this is uh, what he calls mewing. If you've heard the term mewing around, this is kind of like a social media fan uh, craze, this whole mewing movement. And this is the idea that uh, after a few months of Mew's practices, these people who, who practiced it claimed that their mouths expanded, jaws became more defined, sleep apnea symptoms lessened, and, their breathing, and they became uh, uh, easier in breathing. So the gist of mewing is to push your tongue back, uh, push the back of the tongue against the back roof of your mouth, and move the rest of the tongue forward like a wave until the tip hits just behind the front teeth. That is mewing. Uh, it's better to just look up a video and see how mewing is done. But if you want to improve your, uh, you know, jaw structure, if you want to improve like your sleep apnea, if you want to uh, expand your mouth, these are all. It's um, mewing is a great way to practice all of this. Uh, so I recommend looking up a video. And he meets with a few other people, and this is how he concludes this chapter. He puts. This is what I learned at the end of this very long and strange trip through the causes and cures of airway obstruction. That our noses and mouths are not predetermined at birth, childhood, or even adulthood. We can reverse the clock on much of the damage that's been done in the past few hundred years by force of will. 
with nothing more than proper posture, hard chewing, and perhaps with mewing. And that's how he ends uh, the chapter. So, um, and that's how part two is ended. Um, so I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned something. Uh, tune in next week so I, I can finish this book and talk about um, more breathing stuff. So I hope you enjoyed again. Uh, make sure to uh, send a message uh, on Instagram and I'll get back to you. And uh, tune in next week. Thank you for listening.